Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Nice to see you. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. Uh, my name is Darren. I'm one of the pastors on staff. If you're visiting with us or you're, uh, you know, here from the neighborhood or whatever, we're excited that you're here. And uh, if you're watching online, we're happy that you're with Sorry we were offline last week. Pastor Jeff wrecked all the power in the first service. And so uh, we've, we fixed that since. So everything's good. Um, excited to be picking up again here in John chapter 3. Uh, we're continuing our series called Love and Trouble. And uh, for those of you who've been here uh, during the series, you know that we've sort of committed together as a family to not only be studying John together, but then sort of uh, to be journaling and writing responses to what God is prompting in us. And to that end, we actually purchased a bunch of uh, Gospel of John journals. And in fact, I think a lot of you already have them. But if you're here this morning, whether you're uh, a regular attender at our church or a, a part of the family, or even if you're just a guest, we would love for you to grab one of those and keep it with you, bring it with you when you come uh, for the sake of just kind of recording what the Spirit says to you uh, through the text and being able to kind of look back on that later. So uh, those journals are in the lobby and at the connection desk. You can and grab one of those uh, after the service today, but we want to make sure everybody gets one of those because we're sort of in it all together. Now in John chapter 3 verse 22 uh, and following, I will, I'll just kind of say as we begin, this is, I've sort of gone on record before as saying this is uh, one of my favorite, if not, if not my favorite text in the entire Bible. So uh, contained in this section is my favorite speech, undeniably in all the scriptures, and it is, um, it's a text that I come back to uh, all, almost daily. I've got this text memorized, it's a, it's a text that... Um, that, that I studied a long time ago, and it has defined word for word, like verbatim, my philosophy of ministry and my approach, both to who I am and what I do and why I do it. So for me, this is actually a really precious text, and it's exciting as a family to kind of open it together. But I'll say this, not, not only is it a vital text to me personally, any of you in the room who are followers of Jesus, I think need to sit up and pay really close attention, not to what I say, but to what John the Baptist says here. A guy who gets a reputation for being kind of a a wild man, eats locusts, dresses weird, kind of out in the wilderness, right? For a guy who, who gets this reputation of being a little crazy, his articulation and his clarity with regard to who he is and why he does what he does is absolutely stellar. And uh, so, so I hope that you'll kind of, kind of lean into this because it has uh, relevance, I think, to each and every one of our lives. In this text, uh, following the, the conversation with Nicodemus and the commentary on the, fall, on the conversation with Nicodemus where we're learning about resurrection life, famously John three sixteen that God loved the world and gave his son, a, a, that anybody who trusts in him or believes in him won't perish but instead would have eternal life. Following the commentary on that conversation with Nicodemus, now it says in 22, uh, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into this area, this is verse 22, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean country and he remained there with them and was baptizing. It says, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. People were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. So we see that both John the Baptist and his disciples were baptizing at this spring near Salim and then somewhere near that same area because there was a lot of water there, uh, Jesus and his disciples are baptizing as well, right? So two different groups of people baptizing and there are people coming out from the city to be baptized. But what we're gonna see in the passage that follows is sort of the stirring of discontent. 
The stirring of disappointment, a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of envy, a little bit of anger on the part of John the Baptist's disciples. These are guys who have hitched their wagons to John the Baptist. He's kind of this revolutionary figure, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And the disciples of John the Baptist are thinking, this guy's going to take us a long way. They're huge. At one time, there's huge crowds of people coming to be baptized by John the Baptist to hear his message. And so he's kind of a revolutionary figure. And all of a sudden, Jesus and his disciples come, and their, their crowds of people are kind of moving, right? They're moving on. Jesus' crowds and his disciples' baptism is growing, and the ministry or the baptism of John the Baptist is declining. It's waning. And his disciples are feeling a little frustration. I don't know if in your life you ever feel that sense of frustration about the way things change over time. Maybe you were, you know, incredibly wealthy at one point and you're not anymore. Maybe you were incredibly healthy at one point and you're not so anymore. Maybe you look at the people around you with some envy and some jealousy of what they're able to do and you're not able to do. And as time goes on, sometimes we get frustrated about the way things change. And that can stir up some anger. It can stir up some jealousy, it can stir up some resentment, some bitterness, some envy. Even this morning, uh, I was standing in front of the bathroom sink and I was getting ready and I said to my wife, I said, I, I said, I'm just achy all over. Like I feel like all my bones ache and all my joints ache, my muscles are all sore. And I said, I just feel kind of gross. And she goes, well, what did you do yesterday? Because she was gone with the kids yesterday and so I was home by myself. She goes, what did you do yesterday? I said, well, I, I, you know, I spent like four and a half hours working on that puzzle. Uh, she got a puzzle yes, uh, for Christmas, and uh, it has dogs on it. And I was sitting at a card table working on the puzzle. I literally worked on that. I watched the Star Wars movie on Netflix, and I, and I uh, worked on this puzzle all day. And I said, yeah, you know, I just, and I'm just stiff now. And she goes, what a sad statement about your physical health, right? <laughs> that you worked on a puzzle for four and a half hours yesterday, and today you can barely move. Like, what is that? Say about, I mean, it used to be like I'd have to climb a mountain to be this sore, and now I just put a couple of dogs in their place on a puzzle and I can't walk the next day. And I look on the change in my life with some resentment and some bitterness and some anger and frustration that I've got to be careful about how I puzzle just to be, you know, just to be sure. I, gotta, I don't know, wear a back brace or something. I have no idea, Right? Sometimes we look at other people's lives or we even look at our current life compared to how things were and we feel this sense of envy or jealousy, a feeling of disappointment. And that's what John the Baptist's disciples feel. They look at what's happening with Jesus across the way and they feel this sense of what is going on. He's taking our thunder. He's taking our people. Look at the way it reads here. Come back to John chapter 3. It says in verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Uh, the word there that's translated purification could also be translated ritual cleansing. So realistically, this is a conversation that John the Baptist and his disciples were having all the time. Because John the Baptist, his, his baptism was different than Jewish baptism. Jewish baptism was for Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism, and so they would, they would baptize Gentile people into Judaism. But the baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And so I would guess that John the Baptist's disciples were always having Jews come out and go, what is it that you're doing out here? This isn't the way baptism's supposed to work. This isn't the way, you're baptizing Jewish people in good standing. Why are you doing this, right? 
So they're having a conversation with this certain Jew about purification, but on this particular day, it takes a little bit of a turn, and we don't have the details of that conversation, but based on their conversation with John the Baptist, we know that at some point in that conversation about ritual cleansing, they must have said, well, what's the difference between what you're doing and what the guy over there is doing? It seems like a lot more people are going over there. Is that different, or is that the same thing? It looks the same. And so there starts to be this jealousy and this envy, this spirit of competition that kind of stirs up in the hearts of John the Baptist's disciples. They're having a conversation about ritual cleansing and they come back to John the Baptist. Uh, Look at this in verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, there's a church in Anaheim that has a choir and orchestra every week and everyone is going to them. Oh no, I'm sorry, that's not... That's not what they said to John the Baptist. That's what people say to me every week. Sorry, go, go back to it. It's fine, it's fine. They came to John. I, got, I get mixed up. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And you hear it in their voice. Can you hear it in their spirit, the sense of jealousy? It's funny that there's some exaggeration there, right? Because that happens. When we're envious and when we're jealous, we tend to attribute greater numbers to the, to the people than there are. It's already told us in the text that John is also baptizing, Jesus' disciples are baptizing, that people are going to both of them. But in John the Baptist's view, in John the Baptist's disciples' view, it appears to them like everyone is going across the, the spring, right? Everybody's going to him. Well, it isn't true. John is baptizing people as well. He's just not baptizing as many as he used to. He doesn't have the kind of popularity that he used to have. He doesn't have the kind of draw that he used to have. And it's true, Jesus and his disciples are drawing people away. But in their jealousy and in their envy, in their discontent, they attribute the idea, well, everybody is going over there. They say, the one you told us about, he's baptizing, right? And everybody's going over there. Now, at this point, John the Baptist could have responded a couple of different ways. He could have felt frustration, just like they felt. He could have felt jealousy in his own heart. Like, what, why would God call me out here to do this thing and then plant somebody across the way to take away my customers? He could have felt anger. He could have felt frustration. He could have felt envy and jealousy. He could have felt any of those things. It's also possible that at that point, John the Baptist could have sort of kicked into, uh, into marketing mode. And he could have said, you know, you're right. We're losing people over here, so we've got to come up with some strategies. What should we do? Well, maybe we print a couple of coupons, you know, like two-for-one dunking specials through all of January, right? Or I've got some extra locusts. Maybe we get them with intrigue. Maybe we say, hey, you know what? If you come to John the Baptist, you could get some locusts. He's got some extra. You've never tasted a locust. Come to us and be baptized and taste your first locust, Right? There are all kinds of schemes and strategies and marketing ploys that John the Baptist could have kicked into to try and up his numbers. But he doesn't do that. And my friends, neither will we. It's not about about having the largest crowds. It's not about having the most people. He doesn't become envious. He doesn't become jealous. He doesn't become discouraged. He doesn't start looking at, at the solution and try and solve it in his own power. He doesn't try and market it. He responds with what is a brilliant, as I've already said, an eloquent declaration of his philosophy of ministry, his philosophy of life and ministry. And so let's look at it a little bit at a time here. It breaks up into four points. If you're taking notes this morning, there are four key things I want you to see, and I'll give those to you as we go. They come to him and say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, 
verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. The first thing that John the Baptist declares for us about his personal philosophy of life and ministry is that he is utterly and completely dependent upon God for everything he has. The first thing is dependence. Dependence. That everything he has, whether his ministry is vibrant and lively, whether there are hundreds of people in line to be baptized, or whether there are four people in line to be baptized, has nothing to do with him, but everything to do with the gift of heaven, the gift of God. We look at our lives sometimes with a sense of frustration or a sense of sorrow or a sense of anger in comparison and contrasting with other people. We feel this jealousy and this envy, but at the core of that jealousy and envy is is a belief in our heart that somehow we deserve more, right? Or that we should have something better or that maybe we made a mistake along the way and we blew it. John the Baptist goes, no, no, no. Nobody receives anything except that that which they receive from heaven. And there are two sides to this. One of it is the ministry we have, whether it's here, huge or whether it's small, that's God's business. Our business is to be faithful in the declaration, faithful in the completing of the calling that God has placed upon us. Our call is not to try and get as many people as possible. If that was our call, then we would shift out of the mode of obedience and shift into a marketing mode. He says no one receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. He is dependent upon God. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when Paul is trying to speak to the argument that's happening between disciples over some are followers of Paul and some are followers of Apollos. He looks at them in in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 7 and he says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. What's Paul saying? He's like Paul, Apollos, Peter, Luke, John. It doesn't matter. All of us are just workers in Jesus' field. He is the one who gives the growth. In 1 Peter chapter 4, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he'll go on to say, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received everything you have, why do you act as if you didn't receive it, but you got it on your own? Just prior to that, he says, don't let yourselves be puffed up. Everything is a gift from God. He's dependent. John says, I'm, I'm here doing the thing that God has asked me to do, and the health is based on obedience, not on numbers, right? He says, no one receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. He's dependent. It's not unlike, uh, there's, a, there's a really cool passage in Numbers chapter 11 where, have you heard the story of Eldad and Medad? They were good friends because their name had the same suffix in it. And uh, thank you for laughing at my suffix joke. In the first service, I put my suffix joke out there and nobody, I got nothing and I was really angry with them. So... I got some bitterness and resentment I got to work on as well. Uh, Check this out. Numbers 11 verse 26 says this. It's a story about Moses. It says, Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out into the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them, right? There are two men who are prophesying outside the camp. You're the prophet, Moses. You can't let this happen, right? Joshua says, My Lord Moses, stop them. Look at verse 29. Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Are you fighting for me? He says, Are you jealous for my sake? 
Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. John the Baptist says, nobody receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. That's a statement about his ministry. It's a statement about his life. It's a statement about his calling. It's also a statement about the fact that everything people need, only Jesus can give them. That everything people need, only Jesus can give them. When they come to John the Baptist, what can he do? He can dunk them in the water. He can call them to prepare their hearts for the Messiah. He can call them to repentance, but he cannot give them life. He cannot give them resurrection. Only Jesus can give that. And so when he says everything that a man has only comes from heaven, there is also an acceptance and a registration in his mind of the fact that they're actually better off in closer proximity to Jesus than they are to him. It is not our goal in a church like this to draw people to the pastors or to draw people to the programs or to draw people to the facilities. It is not our goal in a place like this to draw others to us. Why? Because the pastors in this church cannot give life to the people who don't know Christ. Only Jesus can do that. And so if you go on our website, you actually might have difficulty trying to find the list of our staff, but the first thing you see on the website is how to follow Jesus. Why? That's not an accident. It's because he is central. We, all of us, are dependent on what he can give. And the rest of us are just workers in his field. John the Baptist is dependent upon God for everything he has. And so is everybody else. And so that leads us to our second point. Continue to look at John chapter 3. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. There are very few things uh, that are as frustrating as a teacher uh, than having your students articulate back to you what you've said, but to do so in a way that completely misses the application. Does that make sense? So it's got to be so frustrating to John the Baptist that his disciples come back and they go, hey, you know the guy you told us about, the one with the beard and the blue sash, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and all that stuff? He's over there stealing our customers, right? (laughs) And John the Baptist says, do you hear yourself? Do you hear? You just said, I have told you I am not the Christ. I'm the one who comes before him. I've said that to you. I've articulated it. And do you not get it? Not only is John the Baptist dependent upon God for everything, but he's also deflective, actively deflective, pushing people away from himself, redirecting their attention onto others, constantly refocusing them. You know, it's possible in our lives as Christians to be drawing people to ourselves, to be drawing people to our charisma, to be drawing people to our knowledge, to our apologetic answers, to our love, to our friendship, whatever. And, and, and what happens is we draw people to ourselves, but we can't save them. In some ways, it's very similar to what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, when he talks about preaching out of selfish ambition. Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, uh, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, uh, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Have you ever thought about the fact that it's possible to walk into the deeds of discipleship to articulate the words of scripture, to preach the gospel as a method of selfish ambition, of gaining something for yourself, to draw people to yourself, to puff yourself up? John the Baptist says, no, no, no. You yourself testify that I am not the Christ. I'm the one who comes before him. He's dependent 
and he's deflective. I'll tell you what, if you're not actively deflecting people towards Jesus, if you're not actively redirecting people's attention toward Christ, they'll focus on you. It's easier, right? It's easier to focus on you. It's easier to focus on what you have done. But there is a superiority of Christ in every category to what you and I bring. In fact, uh, John, one of these Johns, look at, look at verse 31 of John chapter 3. In verse 31, we see what is either a continuation of John the Baptist's speech, or it may be a place where John the evangelist, John the apostle who's writing, takes up a bit of a commentary. In John 3, 31, uh, you don't get quotation marks in the Greek, so sometimes it's hard to tell where, uh, where speeches stop and start. But listen to what it says about the superiority of Christ in verse 31 and following. John 3, uh, verse 31 says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus has a superiority of origin. I come from Texas. It's not that great, right? Jesus comes from heaven. There is a superiority of origin. He bears witness to what he has seen, verse 32. Bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Think about this, not only a superiority of origin, but a superiority of witness. He has seen and heard things that you and I have never seen and heard. He's experienced things as the creator of the world that we don't even fathom. Is his testimony better than ours? Is his witness better than ours? Absolutely. I've only seen this much in my 44 years. Jesus created it all. A superiority of origin, superiority of witness, a superiority of word. He speaks the words of God. Superiority of resource. He gives the Spirit. None of us in this room have the ability to give the Spirit to others. We're limited in our origin and in our resource and in our word and in our witness. That doesn't mean those things are worthless, but it certainly means they pale in comparison to the origin and the witness and the power and the resource of the Lord Jesus. So John the Baptist is not only dependent, he's deflective. You, you, you yourselves heard me say, I'm not the Christ, I'm the one who comes before. Next he gives us a really cool illustration, right? He paints a really great picture, and I think it's actually really helpful. Look at John 3, verse 29. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He's painting a picture for us. He's giving us an illustration of proper perspective, of proper understanding of our role. He looks and says, at a wedding, it's the bride and the bridegroom that are central to the story. The best man stands at the side, and while that's a position of honor, and it's fun to be there, it isn't the center of the story. Now imagine, just for the sake of the illustration he's giving, imagine for a second that you've never been to a wedding, right? And that your best friend invites you to be the maid of honor, or, or he invites you to be the best man, right? Your best friend invites you to take this role of honor at their wedding. And so having never been to one, you just sort of assume with a title like maid of honor or best man, you just sort of assume this is going to be all about me, right? I get to buy a fancy dress. I get to rent a tuxedo. I get to give a speech. You know, I mean, people are going to really be blown away by me being the best man. If you go to a wedding as the best man or as the maid of honor with the perception that the whole day is going to be about you, how frustrated are you going to be for the entirety of the ceremony, right? Aren't you going to be ticked off the whole time? Why? Because you're standing up there in your tux that you paid money for and no one's looking at you at all. 
They keep looking at your friend, right? They keep talking to him. The pastor won't even talk to you. They won't let you kiss the lady, right? <laughs> what a ripoff. I'm the best man. I mean, just a little smooch wouldn't be the end of the world. I'm barely on the video. By the time I give my toast, nobody's paying attention to me, right? How frustrated are you if you don't properly understand your position? Incredibly frustrated. Can I say this? That I would guess that for many of you in the room, when it comes to following Jesus, much of your frustration and your disappointment and your envy and your anger and your bitterness and your jealousy is rooted in the fact that you don't understand your role. John the Baptist says, I'm not the bride, I'm not the bridegroom, I'm the dude who gets to stand to the side and rejoice. And my joy is complete, why? Because I'm dedicated to the joy of someone else. There's your third point if you're taking notes. He's dependent, he's deflective, and he's dedicated to someone else's joy. And this is a completely un-American way to think about your life. Because we have been told again and again and again that it's all about you, my friends, right? We want you to feel good. We want you to have your needs met. We want everybody to love you and think you're awesome. We want you to have a lot of followers. And then you start following Jesus, and you think you're the center of the story, and you're frustrated and angry, just like a best man who thinks it's all about him. Jealous and bitter and angry and envious because no one's paying attention to you. Can I tell you? You were never meant to be the center of the story. The grand story that Jesus is, or that God is writing throughout human history is a story about Jesus. And you and I are a footnote at best. You and I are like the Jawas in the first Star Wars movie that get killed like in the third scene, right? Nobody cares. <laughs> and doesn't that rub against your ego a little bit? You don't want to be one of those nameless Jawas. You want to be Luke Skywalker because that's what America has told you you can be. The gospel says the story is about Jesus. Sometimes we're dedicated to our own joy. And if you're dedicated to your own joy, following Jesus will always make you mad. But if you can be dedicated to the joy of another, is there great honor in being a maid of honor? Is there great honor in being a best man? You bet there is. When you understand your proper position, there is great joy in standing here and rejoicing at the joy of your friends. It is a great privilege to be invited by the Lord Jesus to be his ambassadors, to carry his message of reconciliation to the lost, to draw other people to Christ so that they too can have resurrection life. That's not a small thing, but it's not about me, and it's not about you. He's dependent, he's deflective, he's dedicated to the joy of another, and then last, look at verse 30. This is probably the most famous part of the speech. John the Baptist says, he must increase but I must decrease. You've heard that before, right? I've seen it like sewed onto pillows and on bumper stickers and whatever. It's kind of one of those Christian phrases that people, oh, he must increase, I must decrease. And a lot of times when we quote it, we quote it as if it's something we're doing, right? Like, hey, I don't know about you all, but I've decided Jesus must increase. Are you in it with me? Let's all get a hand in here. We're gonna do our best to try and increase Jesus. That's not what John the Baptist is saying. This isn't a, it's not a mantra to be repeated it's not, it's not a goal to be enacted, right? This isn't, this isn't John the Baptist conceding victory to Jesus. Like, hey, you know what? I gave it a good fight, but turns out, Jesus, you win, right? So I'm just gonna let you, I'm gonna let you increase. I'm gonna decrease. I'm just gonna, no, no, no. This isn't concession on John the Baptist's part. This is John the Baptist's embracing of a universal truth about creation. Philippians 2 says, that because of the saving work of Christ, 
Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a day coming when every knee will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you know what? None of our names will be mentioned during that ceremony. We won't even come up. We won't even be on the radar because he must increase and we must decrease. That's not something you do. It's something you realize. And once you've realized it, once you've realized that that's the nature of the universe, that he is growing in significance and that you and I, through the course of our lives, are declining in our, in our influence or in our, in our like, reputation, in our relevance, that all these things are diminishing as his glory increases, the culmination of human history, then there's real joy in it because you were allowed to participate. You were invited to participate. Now, this isn't John holding the door for Jesus and saying, I'm gonna let you go first. This is John the Baptist going, this whole building was created by you, right? They're your doors. He's dependent. He's deflective. He's dedicated to the joy of another. And he's decreasing. That fourfold philosophy is relevant in every moment of every day. Whether you're a vocational shepherd in a local church or whether, whether you're a doctor or a dentist or whether you're a stay-at-home dad or whether you're a bicycle shop repairman or whether, it doesn't matter who you are or what you do. If you're a follower of Jesus, dependence, deflection, dedication to the joy of another and decreasing will radically change your life. Because again, most of the disappointment and the disillusionment and the frustration and the anger and the bitterness and the jealousy and the envy, most of those things are rooted in the fact that we've not embraced this, that we think we're the center of the story, that we think this whole thing is about us. And the moment you realize that God in his grace has invited us to stand to the side and invite other people to know him, there is real joy in being a best man or being a maid of honor. But until you wrap your arms around dependence and deflection and dedication to someone else's joy and the fact that you're decreasing, you'll always, you'll always be fighting against it. You'll always be fighting against it. Why, why does this come so easily to John and why is it sometimes so difficult for us? I think the reason it comes so easily to him at this point in his life as people are leaving his line and going to that of Jesus is that he recognizes what the theology here in this last section is said to. Look at verse 35. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. That word obey basically means does not believe, shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The central truth that drives this philosophy is that people need Jesus. They need Jesus more than they need to be entertained, more than they need to taste a locust, more than they need a two-for-one coupon, more than they need anything else. They need Jesus. Why? Because life is in Christ and only in Christ. Those who believe in Jesus will be saved, but those who have not believed in Christ, the wrath of God remains on them. The last thing I want you to see this morning, go all the way back to the beginning of the text we're studying. There's a really interesting word. It's a pretty common word, but look at 22 and 23. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. John also. I want you to look at that word also. I want you to think about the word also there for a second, because here's the scenario. Jesus and his disciples have come out and large crowds are going. Jesus is drawing people. And in fact, he's drawing people away from John's ministry. 
And yet we don't see John throw in the towel. We don't see John go, well, Jesus is here, so I guess I'm done. Time to go fishing or time to go catch some locusts or whatever, right? He doesn't bow out. What? Jesus is over there baptizing with his disciples. or he's, his ba- It'll say in John chapter 4, Jesus himself didn't do the baptizing, but it's not relevant today. Jesus' disciples are baptizing, and John also was baptizing. Why is he still there? Why is he still doing it, even though it's different? Even though it maybe pales in comparison to what he was doing before? Even though the crowds are smaller? Even though the energy is different? Even though his disciples are kind of thinking about leaving? Why is he also baptizing? Why also? Why does he keep doing it? Because he was commanded to. Because, because he was built for that. God built him to be an ambassador pointing other people, to be a light, to be a lamp pointing the way. It doesn't matter if there are two people there to be dunked or there are 10 or there are 10,000. There are people in that line who need someone to show them that Jesus is across the way. And so John continues to shine that light. He continues to tell that story. He continues to point, to deflect, to be dependent to be dedicated to the joy of these few in his line, right? Because he knows he's decreasing. Jesus has life, and that's it. And what we're about, both as a church corporately and what we're about as individual followers of Jesus, is pushing people to him because life is only found in him. And so we also serve, even through our disappointment, even when puzzling makes us sore for the next day, right? We push through because we have an opportunity to lead others to the knowledge of Christ.